Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. My three girls are all growing up. It's very distressing and wonderful at the same time. I mean, many of you know. Uh, So yesterday, it was my uh, task to take the bunk bed that I had painfully constructed for my eldest two girls and disassemble it and then put it in my yard with the for sale sign. And nobody took me up on the offer, I'm just saying, if any of you are interested. But uh, I'll never forget the construction of that Ikea bed from hell, well, from, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was called, it had a Swedish name, which was Mydale, Mydale, which roughly translated means impossible to construct. Uh, the directions had no words, just little pictures. There were two pages missing. That's fun. Um, it took five hours and a little rage to construct, but I, I did, and the bed held together for the most part for years, and nobody got hurt, which is even better, but yeah, by the time that was concluded, I, I had wished that Ikea, at least in this instance, had given me better directions. I could have used some real directions in order to um, uh, solve this um, bunk bed conundrum. Uh, but what's wonderful about Jesus is that he didn't lead a mystery cult. He didn't leave us in the dark. He didn't conceal everything. But he was so kind to us to give us certain directions so that we would know what to do. And that's what we have in this Matthean or Matthew's version of the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, the risen, soon-to-be-ascended Jesus clusters his disciples around him for some final words, and he commissions them. He gives them instructions because they have a destiny, you know. They have a big future ahead of them, and he wants them to know what to do so they won't be left in the dark. He wants them, wants us to make apprentices, make followers, make disciples of all nations. And And that involves many things, but in this text, it really involves two things chiefly. One is rinsing, and the other is reshaping. And I want to speak about rinsing and reshaping as absolutely core to the discipleship enterprise. We need to rinse, and we need to reshape. So let me give the little preamble, though, because it's worth mentioning. Right before Jesus tells us what to do, you know, go therefore— Before that, he offers these audacious words that almost no one in history has ever said. He's very bold, very direct. He says in verse 8, right before his ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, you've never said that. And if you have, you should be locked up, right? Um, Because there have been people in history who have made that claim. uh, You know, Alexander the Great probably thought it. So did Napoleon, so did Stalin. I mean, they, 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 were, they thought it because they were crazy, and they were wrong, and they died. So it didn't work out the way they thought. Um, but Jesus makes this audacious claim about himself, and notice the totality of his authority. He doesn't say some authority in aspects of earth, or all authority in Israel will be given to me. He says all authority in heaven and on earth. You know, everything from the supernovas to the Mariana Trench everything in between. It's all mine. It all belongs to me. 
Now, how can Jesus make such a muscular claim? I mean, it seems on its face to be ridiculous. Well, because he's unique. Why is he unique? For many reasons, but in this passage context, most immediately for his resurrection, namely that all other earthly authorities, no matter what they brag about or boast about, have biological stopwatches. Whatever they claim, it's going to stop at some point. But what do you do with a risen Jesus who never dies again? Well, that establishes a new kind of everlasting authority that knows uh, no competitors. And so this Jesus, rich in authority, heaven and on earth, commands us to make followers by doing two things. Two things. This is verse 9. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and then he tells us how to do it, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I want to speak about the rinsing and the reshaping that's involved in that uh, discipling enterprise. First, rinsing. Jesus says we are to make disciples by baptizing them, baptizing those disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that is fascinating, especially when you consider the powerful muscular preamble of this whole passage. Jesus just described himself as an unrivaled powerhouse And with that kind of authority, remember he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, I could have called upon 10,000 angels, right? With that kind of powerhouse authority, he could have told us to do anything, anything, impressive things, or non-impressive things. He could have said, sit there and do nothing. Um, Just rest a little while and consider deep in your heart the recesses of your being, what I've taught. But he didn't say that. Um, He could have said, how about you focus only on social action? Because the world is a mess and you need to protest nuclear power and fracking. Like just, you need to enter in and engage. But he doesn't. He also says you could take over the Roman Empire and then, you know, coerce people to obey Old Testament law through the power of the state. He certainly doesn't do that. Jesus instead has all authority to command anything that he wants. And what does he command? Give people baths. That's what he says. Baptize people. I think that's a rather strange thing to say after you've already established an unrivaled uh, authority. But that's what he says. Rinse people. Baptize people. Engage in this aquatic rite with people. Now, as you may know, the baptismal rite for cleansing, religious cleansing, predated Jesus and existed uh, within the Old Testament era. John the Baptist preached about baptism. It's in his name, so that's a dead giveaway. Um, Uh, But the whole concept within Israel is that there would be a way to engage with God from a posture of undefiled nature, that you could symbolically remove your own um, moral ineptitude and culpability through this aquatic rite, that you could be made clean. That's what baptism represents, that you could be um, undefiled before God. Um, Now, Jesus accepts that ritual and a lot of that meaning about being undefiled through this washing, but he has his own recipe for it, a recipe that was not copied by anyone else in, uh, in Jewish history. It was just expressly revealed right now before Jesus's ascension, in which Uh, Jesus says that they need not just to be baptized or dunked in water, you need to use a formula. I'm going to give you words, and you need to use these words for these disciples when you baptize them. He's very specific. 
He says that you are to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But let's focus on the word name for a sec. Names, as you may know, have a big, um, a big weight in Holy Scripture. They're often very, very defining for particular individuals. Uh, they often define a person's destiny or core values. You think of the name Israel, which means one who wrestles with God, or the name Ruth, which means pity, or the name Jesus, which means God saves. Well, we know that God discloses his own name to Moses in Exodus uh, chapter 3 at the burning bush scene, where he tells Moses, I am that I am, in Hebrew, Yahweh. I am that I am. Now, over time in Jewish history, in the Old Testament, in that era, uh, people became so nervous to utter that word in a cavalier manner that they actually stopped using it in common parlance, and they supplanted Yahweh with Hashem, which just is, means the name in Hebrew, the name. They're here to gather under the name, worship the name, pray to the name, Hashem. Uh, well, here's what's fascinating. Jesus doesn't use that word for God in this passage. Instead, he unveils an even more definitive name of God that expresses not just God's isness, I am that I am, but God's inner life, God's inner dynamic as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That according to Jesus of Nazareth, followers of Jesus need to be baptized with that formula, that formula that unveils God's powerful, sacred name. And again, names convey definition and destiny. Um, now, just a, a, a side note, but it's not kind of a side note. Some churches don't like that. You may know this. It's really controversial, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's controversial in some circles. They dislike the masculine imagery some people, of father and son. And so I, I've been to churches where they introduced the sermon in the name of the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer. I went to another church once where it says, in the name of the, the mother, the lover, and the friend. I'm like, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore. Um, <laughs> now, now, they say, that the people that use this language to replace Trinitarian language, they say, well, this language is biblical, the language they're using. God is often described in the Bible as a friend or creator, redeemer, so forth. And that's actually often true, quite true. Throughout Scripture, God is often described with metaphors, very frequently described uh, with metaphors. God as tower, God as rock, God as um, shepherd, God as king. At other times, God is described as having various attributes, right? God as love, God as being just, God as being mothering. These things describe what God does and what God is like. But not what God is at his irreducible essence. That's what a name does. God's name is more than a metaphor. God's name is more than an attribute, as important as metaphors and attributes are, as needful as they are. God's name defines who God is irreducibly. In other words, God is not like a father. God is your father. God is not like a son. God is the son. God is not like a Holy Spirit. God is the Holy Spirit. 
Um, if we, friends, disregard God's triune nature because of the currents of the times, we disregard not only the teaching of Jesus, as dangerous as that is, we also disregard God's core nature, his own self-revelation, which would seem a dastardly thing to do. Well, um, as I said, like other names in the Bible, God's name defines uh, core aspects of who he is, his identity. Um, what can we know from this name of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, it's interesting, the word name is singular. It doesn't say names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Singularity is part of the Godhead. That's why we say God has one essence. And yet within that one essence, we have differentiation. Three persons within this one uh, Godhead. And we know something more about God in God's essence, that God is non-competitive in God's own self. So in God, you have this sense of perfect balance of love and power. No competition between the persons. Um, this is why what, one theologian put it this way, that God is a saving relationship. That's how they define God. God is a saving relationship. What did they mean by that? Well, there's a relationship in the Trinity, three persons in one essence. God is lovingly relational as the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son, and round and round we go. So it's relational. But it's not just relational, it's relational in an others-centered way. It's savingly relational because you have the Father. What does the Father do? The Father is the artisan and architect of all reality. You are here because of the Father's will. You may not like yourself. You may hate your personality, but you know what? God gave you that personality. God made you fearfully and wondrously that you are a design of heaven. You reflect, you yourself reflect heaven and the Father in such a way that no one else does, no one in this room, no one in existence, that he's the architect and artisan of of your very nature. He is the foundation of order in the universe. Um, he is the, the fountainhead of all creation. And then um, that father sent a son whenever we violated the norms of the father's creation. The son is here to offer sacrificial, pH-measurable blood to redeem people like you and me, to offer his life as a ransom for many. And that that son or that aspect of God's redemption is not just a man doing these things for us, but the God-man, God joining himself to man for eternity in order to save and salvage what was lost, that God invades the very deformed world in order to give us what we could not earn for ourselves. And then the Holy Spirit, who is God with us right now, right in this room, right in your living room, uh, with your friendships, everywhere you are, the Holy Spirit is with you, meaning that... Uh, that Jesus told us that he would send a counselor, a helper to be with us until he came for us again. Uh, and so right now, there's nowhere you can go in which you can evade God because the Holy Spirit is always with you to create faith in you, to create repentance in you, to renew your own nature. Um, and so uh, even God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, suggests a saving relationship, or to put it another way, the gospel is even in God's name. Because the Father sends the Son to you, the Son sends the Spirit to you. God saves by his very Trinitarian nature. And so if we get rid of those words out of all sorts of weird fears, we're actually eradicating aspects of the gospel from God's own nature. So, um, uh, even in God's name, we get the gospel. And the, why is this important? 
Um, this is important, I was going to say, because of my $90 khakis, but follow me. So I was online, and I'm a sucker for an occasional announcement or uh, advertisement from Facebook, and I saw these khakis, and they looked really amazing, and they were way beyond my, you know, I don't really buy pants that are that expensive, but I, I thought they look really good, and maybe I would look better if I had $90 khakis. So I bought these stupid $90 khakis, and then I'm like walking through the kitchen one day with my amazing khakis, and all of a sudden, uh, Monique, who's making bacon because she's a sanctified woman, um, uh, the, 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 the bacon grease spattered, and it spattered all over my $90 khakis. Now, I'm not an idiot. I know what to do. You put in all the stuff, the baking soda and the, all, the, you know, all the things. Yeah, didn't work. Didn't work. Ruined my $90 khakis. Defiled. Defiled my bougie enterprise. But the thing is, the thing is, I think most of us feel that way most of the time. That is to say that we are defiled and that no matter what we've done, no matter what books we've read, no matter what tactics we've tried, we can't seem to scrub out our defilement because we are our mistakes. We are uh, uh, the sins that have been committed against us. We are our pasts. We are our darkened presence. But that's just what we are, right? We're always going to be the person who yells too much at the kids. We're always going to be the person who um, lies extravagantly to get attention. We're always going to be the person who failed romantically so many times that, you know, it's hard to recall all the mistakes. That's just who we are. We're just utterly defiled. But what baptism in the name, the Hashem, the name of God teaches you is that all of those things, yeah, great. That's all part of it, but that's actually not who you are anymore, because now you're identified with the locus of glory. Now you're identified with the God of salvation. Now you're identified with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've been immersed, bathed in that world, and that world always holds. That word of God will never, ever depart from you, because it's from God to you, not based on you. It's entirely one way. It's a complete gift, and that's the very thing that God has given us to show his disciples that they are undefiled, because they are washed in Trinitarian grandeur. So you are baptized in this place in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that you'll know the gospel promises for you. So that's something about rinsing. Now something about reshaping. That is, to experience a deep alteration in life because um, God promises us that when he justifies us by grace, he also will send us the Holy Spirit to alter our course uh, because all of us, you know, have so many problems and so much inner tumult that we need a lot of help in this life, not just heaven when we die. We need a lot of help right here and right now. And so Jesus also says, after you baptize them, baptize them, he says, we make disciples by, and this is verse uh, 9 again, by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've given you a lot of teaching that will contour your life in a certain manner, and you'll be demonstrably helped and known as my apprentices as you live into that new contoured life described by my teaching. In other words, we don't have to make this thing up, right? Jesus offers us in his person, that is how he behaved, and in his words, directions that shape the Christian experience. Now, you may know that he says here about his commandments, to observe all that I've commanded you. The commandments of Jesus, or what we call the moral law of God in the Bible, has two principal uses. The first is that it shows you how God has ordered creation and how it would help you to live into that order. It's just... 
Uh, it's, the, it's the reason that we don't yet put a finger into the meat grinder, right? It's just good for you not to, because God has ordained certain things in the world that are inflexibly true, and if we live according to them, we do better. So that's the first use of the law, creational use. But the second is accusational, that the law unveils the human condition for all, that, all the help that it needs and all the resurrection we need, and then it sends us to the cross. Um, but either way, um, the commandments of God are helpful. The commandments of Christ are helpful because they have a hard edge, and sometimes a hard edge can be very, very helpful. What do I mean by that? Well, I was, um, as you know, a church planting from a very young age. I, was, I had more hair, fewer wrinkles, and um, much better looking, but uh, things change, you know. So I was 25, and I was, um, I was you, you know, waffling in terms of the church plant. I wasn't sure what to do, what moves to make, what things to try. And so I, I went to all f- these fancy people in the diocese and beyond, and I said, what do I do? help me. I need to know what to do. And do you know what they said? Well, I wrote some of these things down. Um, Ethan, just trust God and it will be fine. Like, oh, okay. And part of that's true. I get it. Yeah, I get it. Um, This is my favorite. Ethan, you're already doing it, buddy. I'm like, not really. Um, And and no, maybe this is my favorite. Ethan, deep, deep down, you already know what to do. I'm like, no, I don't. That's why I'm asking you. I, what did I want? I wanted someone with credibility and authority to help me because I felt like I was in a, like this fog of crazy. And it would have been really helpful if somebody said, just try these two things. They'll probably help you. Well, <clears throat> I wanted that demystification, but I didn't get it. Uh, God used other things. It all worked out. But nevertheless, it would have been helpful. I have a friend um, who says, Ethan, regarding life, I have a very low batting average. Um, uh, um, what, what, that's an admission to say what I'm doing isn't working, and so I need a wisdom that is superior to myself. It's a new prayer that I pray for all of us as a church, and certainly myself, is that God would give us a wisdom higher than our instincts, because our instincts often get us into trouble. We need a wisdom that supersedes instincts, and that's why we have a Christ who said things, taught things, embodied things, and as we live under his non-grievous commands, we're actually helped and helped incredibly. So we have a savior teacher who taught about all sorts of things, frankly, who taught about sacrificial concern for people that are devastated, who talked about care for children, talked about the dangers of loving money too much, talked about the dignity of human life, talked about um, how marriage works, talked about... um, the material world and loving it, but yet not loving it too much where it capsizes you, how to have eternal life. I mean, he taught about all these things. Uh, And notice how comprehensive Jesus is here. He says that you are to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. All. It's a threatening word, right? Fairly um, total in its quality. That those who claim Christ cannot legitimately, like, parse him out. Take snippets of Jesus that you find palatable while leaving the rest. Um, Those who claim Christ can't say, for example, I like what Jesus says regarding care for the poor, but not what he says about marriage. Or I like what Jesus says about eternal life, but not what he teaches regarding God's judgment. Because the same Christ said all that stuff. And when we place ourselves above Christ as the one who, like Torquemada, interrogates him, 
just say, not, not good, not the best place, right? Because he just said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, not given to Ethan or Steve or anybody else. I mean, Steve Matson's always, you know, he's always trying for that place of complete authority. <laughs> that was a joke because he's the last person that would do that. Um, so we place ourselves before the entirety of Christ and what he taught. Learning in this life, often through painful experience, to prefer his wisdom to our own. Um, friends, given the ever-changing contours of our times, some of Jesus' teaching will be in fashion, other bits, not so much. But his words, his directives, become for us an unsinkable Atlantis. They become for us an unshakable continent. Jesus talked about it that way. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember what he said? He said, life is going to batter you with storms and wind. And your life is like a house. And if you build your house on a shaky, sandy foundation, it's going to collapse and hurt you. But if you build your house on my teaching, it'll be better for you. The wind and storms are still going to come, but you'll make it. Yeah. Well, that's the idea, friends, that the triune God's design for us is to be healthier than we are and to reshape us through the teachings of Jesus Christ and his inspired apostles. You know, thank God Jesus is not like Ikea, giving us impossible-to-follow instructions with parts that all look the same and yet are different. Instead, he gives us simple instructions, challenging perhaps to implement, but simple instructions. We disciple people by rinsing them and reshaping them. Now let me offer an applicatory word regarding both categories before we leave. Rinsing. For what it's worth, the foundation or the secure center of the Christian life is not our own transformation, but our baptismal pardon. We are not saved by obeying and following Jesus, but obeying Jesus is the experiential pathway to more liberty in our lives. That's why we say in the office of morning evening prayer, morning and evening prayer, that um, we give ourselves up to your service, right? But your okayness, friends, in God's sight is not your own doing. It's Hashem. It's the name. It's the promissory name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has been given to you through baptism that has created faith. Rinsing. But it's now something about reshaping. That's what I want to say about reshaping. Reshaping involves the body. And I don't just mean physicality. I mean making followers of Jesus Christ is a definitively bodily act as in the body of Christ. It involves the whole church and varying contributions from various members of the church. Many preachers, intentionally or unintentionally, uh, do nothing but offer harsh law when they talk about discipleship. Conversion is, they think, by grace. Discipleship is by law. What I mean is that they guilt their congregations when preaching about the Great Commission. They ask rather needlingly, how many disciples are you making in your life right now? With that voice. Um, I mean you individually. Because if you aren't actively making disciples right now, you are not living the Great Commission, and therefore you should question whether or not you're even a Christian at all. I once listened, listened in abject disgust as one preacher mocked his own ushers. His ushers, you know, the, the nice people that stand at the door that hand you bulletins and say, hi. Um, he said, whatever ushering is, it is not making disciples who make disciples, and therefore it means nothing to God. You know, it takes a real man to beat up on ushers, right? <laughs> what is that? Um, 
What seems to be assumed in this style of law-motivated discipleship is that the creation of one particular disciple is the sole task of one particular Christian. That is, it is your job, your job as an individual, your job to convert them, teach them, pray for them, meet with them, give them hospitality, buy them books, persuade them not to listen to death metal, remember their birthdays, write Christmas cards with little Bible verses in them, help them discover their spiritual gifts, challenge them when they're erring, aid in them becoming a leader, whatever that means, of some sort of ministry, and after they are thoroughly exhausted from all your spiritual prodding, make sure they get to heaven when they die. But it's all on you until you die and then join them in heaven. Um, Such a schematic, friends, would simply be Sinai 2.0, and we know how well the first one worked out. Um, But making followers of Jesus is not all on you. It's not all on you. It is a communal act. Remember, the Great Commission was given to a team, to a band of followers, to a body of believing people. We make disciples as a body, and each unique part or person has something unique to contribute. So many of you can use your brains for the cause of discipleship because you think deeply about the gospel and how to communicate it to people in ways that are compelling. Others can yield their artistry in the discipling enterprise, and sing or write music or paint gorgeous things that communicates uh, the truth of God and lifts people to God. Some can give with their hands through gritty labor to aid the work of the kingdom of God. Some can open their wallets and fund all sorts of kingdom enterprises. Some can use their feet and seek out those who haven't heard about Jesus. Some can use their free time to offer companionship to the many lonely and isolated people all around us and the isolated people in this very room. Some can give their intuition and be sensitive about the needs of people and intuit how to best pray for them. Some can give their ears and listen to sufferers without suggesting all sorts of steps they could implement to end their suffering. Some have enlarged spiritual hearts filled with compassion Uh, for those who need to see the love of God before they can hear about the love of God. And some of you, by the way, can cook so well um, that you bring immediate existential delight to people through what you make. You know, one bite of beef wellington can help people see the kingdom of God. I really do believe that. Some of you are affectionate and communicative, and you lift people up with words of encouragement that are not white noise, words that can bring life to the dead. What is my point? That the discipling enterprise is not all on you or me. You can't make disciples all by yourself. Every disciple who has ever been made is the product of 1,000 contributors to their discipleship. But you have a wonderful, unique contribution to make in God's kingdom. So through us, God rinses and reshapes and therefore makes disciples of Jesus. And yes, we'll get it wrong, we'll fumble, and we'll get it right sometimes too. But as we disciples live under the beautiful pledge from our all-powerful Christ, um, the end is certain, and it is good. For he said these words of resilient gospel hope to every one of us, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Amen. We at last, they took your-